0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. Appreciate that. Good to see everybody here this morning. Good morning. 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 Just making sure you're awake. Because if you're asleep, I'm going to go to sleep too. I could use it. Well, we're going to be in uh, the book of Revelation, believe it or not, this morning. And we are in chapter 19. And as we have been seeing all along that this book, uh, we think about Revelation and we almost immediately think about, well, heaven. Revelation is about heaven. But we're also seeing that Revelation is as much about uh, God's judgment against wickedness and evil as it is about the heaven that awaits us. And that's because in order to have the heaven that awaits us, in order to have the righteousness, peace, and joy, something has to take place. And that is in order to have the bliss and the holiness, the evil has to go. The wickedness, the sin, it all has to be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with to the point where it doesn't rise its, or raise its uh, ugly head again. One of the things that makes a good horror movie a good horror movie is that you can't get rid of whatever beast you are the prey of. Whether it's a robot or some kind of dinosaur or made up something or other or just a, a wicked person. There's always the scenes where you think finally it's gone. And usually in the final seconds of a horror movie where you think it's been blown to smithereens, there's that little twitching. Something about it, one little piece Maybe just a finger is twitching. And then you kind of get an idea there's going to be a sequel. And what comes to, your, to my mind is uh, the famous words, I'll be back. The Terminator. And the Terminator was back. I think he came back like six or seven times <laughs> after being blown up and melted and molted and everything else. And there's a sense in which this is the world that we live in now. At least for now. And that is, sin is defeated. It's defeated in small battles, but it continues to, to raise its head. Sin continues to come back for more and more and more. And we, we try to push it down through the power of prayer. And, and, and we master things and we become disciplined. And yet, next thing you know, there's that little twitch. And there it is again. And you think, I thought I, I rid myself of these things. But it constantly wants to overcome us. It wants to control us. And that's sin in the world as we know it. The revelation reminds us that no matter how powerful sin is, that those that are in Christ will absolutely not be overcome. Not because of our own efforts, but because of the blood of Christ. Because of the victory that Christ gained on the cross. And so we'll have our battles and we'll win some and we'll lose some. But we will never ever be condemned to hell. We will never ever face the wrath that we deserve for losing these battles. Because of what Christ accomplished for us. The fact that he gives us his righteousness and takes our sin upon himself. In a sense it's it's absurd. And it's humbling. And the Bible calls it good news. It's good news that we can have our sins removed from us even though we don't deserve it and receive the gift of righteousness from Christ. But part of that good news is the good news that, that God will eradicate sin. And there will come a time, and I know it's hard to believe right now, but there will come a time where sin will be pushed down and defeated and you will never again see the little twitch. It will be lifeless and gone. And so in highly symbolic terms, Revelation in a sense, it describes how all these things transpire. It's it's our reality. And it's in the spiritual realm happening in Revelation. And uh, seals are open. uh, Trumpets are blown. Bowls of wrath are poured out on humanity. And bad things happen. You see war after war after war. You see tyrants come. It's a power, you see famines, you see suffering, Uh, you see innocent people die. Disaster after disaster, we see injustice, we see oppression. And so in this world, we see the ugly and the beautiful at the same time. We see those that succumb to sin, but then we see those that overcome sin and believe in Christ and follow Christ. And it's a mixed bag here. And Revelation gives us this picture of that mixed bag and the spiritual warfare and all the things that are taking place on the spiritual realm and also the physical realm. And sometimes it's disheartening. Sometimes it's discouraging to realize that we live in such a broken world. I've gotten gotten to the point where I hardly even read the whole news article anymore. I just look at the headlines of what's going on. As it becomes so discouraging and so depressing. People forget that there's any good news happening in the world today. But a thing I like about Revelation is that it is a reminder that as much tragedy and suffering, gut-wrenching things that happen, even that we face in our own lives that perhaps we're experiencing now that we think, oh, this is so sad, this is so terrible, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Just remember that, in a sense, really what's happening is that God is setting the world back up. Right side up. Because in order for him to do that, in order for him to get things back in order where they need to be, judgment has to fall. And sin has to be dealt with. And I'm also reminded in the last chapter, anyway, what can we do about it in the meantime? Well, one thing we can do about it is we can join the saints and the creatures in heaven. And that is they just pour their hearts out to God and praise God. Because all the confusing things that we see in this world that we may not know and can't figure out, we know that everything God does is righteous and just. And God is busy at work. And so we have every right and reason to want to praise Him and praise Him and praise Him. Because what is really happening? Yeah, you can look at it as if the world will never get better. But really what's happening is it's getting worse before it gets better. So all this kind of serves as an introduction for a passage this morning. In chapter eight line 18 we saw Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, fall. And there was even an entire chapter written as a dirge. And we see all the lamenting because of the great effect that took place it had on people as they lost their idols they lost the things that they were living for and and trying to gain because the great Babylon fell in this chapter two more great beasts uh, evil powers will fall and that is the, the Antichrist and the false prophet those that are still at work in our world today there will come a time when they will fall when we get to chapter 20 Finally, we will see wickedness of all wickedness fall. And that is the dragon Satan will be dealt with in chapter 20. But we're not there yet. And it's interesting how um, the the evil figures are introduced to us in Revelation in a certain order. We have the beast of the sea and then the land and then the dragon. And they're actually taken uh, out of the picture in in reverse order here. So the Lord... Um, in our passage today, he doesn't appear as the bridegroom. He doesn't appear as the lamb. He appears in this passage as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He appears as a mighty, mighty captain and the lord of armies. And the armies of, he- of heaven accompany him and wage war in this battle of battles. So we get to see lots of sides of the God that we worship. He is incredibly gentle, he is incredibly kind, and he is incredibly fierce when he needs to be fierce. Interestingly enough, we're not treated to a lot of battle gory details that we might be used to or that we might want to see, but frankly, in the end, it doesn't really matter that much because God wins, Christ wins, and wickedness will be destroyed, So we are in Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 10 through 21. I'd like for us to see three things in this passage. The king and his armies, uh, the beast and his armies, and then worship God. So first, the king and his armies. Let's read verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So once again we see heaven open, the doors of heaven open here for John, of course, there is no literal door to heaven as if it actually swung on its hinges. It's more the idea that John's eyes were open to see what's always, always already there. And we, we kind of get that same idea when in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being um, stoned to death for his profession of faith. And it says, full of the Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That is, was always there but his eyes were open to it. This time, the door, metaphorical door of heaven, is open, but John's not going in. Something is coming out. Something is exiting this door, and it is Jesus. It is the captain of hosts, and he has his saints with him. He has his heavenly army with him. And it's just like um, when the heavens were open when Jesus began his ministry, when he was anointed for His ministry, and and they saw the Spirit like a dove descend from heaven upon him. But now he comes, continuing his ministry, fulfilling his ministry as a captain. He comes anointed on his white steed, his horse. High o' Silver, maybe, I don't know. I get in my picture, it had to have been grand, whatever it was. So we don't know the name of this horse, but we know the name of its rider. And uh, Jesus has many, many names because in Scripture, the name uh, identifies the character. It, 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 it's tied to the whole being. And so Jesus, in, uh, he's, he has the name above all names. But here, he is identified as faithful and true. And we sang about that in our, one of our worship so, uh, songs this morning. And if you think back with me, when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches way back in chapter 3 of Revelation a long time ago, He described Himself to the church of Laodicea as, um, I am the Amen, the faithful and true. Well, He's faithful because He accomplishes everything He says He will. He fulfills everything that is revealed about Him. And he is true because he personifies truth. So you have Jesus. And then the exact opposite personification is Satan. There's nothing good about him. He's not faithful. He's not true. He's a liar. He doesn't follow through with anything. All he does is deceive. Christ is faithful and true. And in this passage, he is a warrior. And in this passage, he is a judge. And the administration of his divine judgment will fall and result in a final victory over his enemies. So all of this means that God is making progress. His eyes, Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire on his head as many diadems. And the eyes, it's symbolic of holiness and purity. It it burns right through you. there's, There's a fierceness to him. The diadems, of course, we have seen, they represent an absolute sovereignty. And so he has many diadems. He's sovereign over all things, all realms. And he also has this name that no one knows. And some people believe, well, we do know it because in, in verse 12 he says he has a name nobody knows. But in verse 13 it says that he is the Word of God. But we already know that he's the Word of God. So we, how can that be a name that no one knows? I personally, I think that he has a name that no one knows. It hasn't been revealed yet. He has many names that we do know. But there's a name, I'm, I'm going to assume, that he has that we do not know. In fact, in, back in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says this about some of his people. And he says, it's written that a new name which no one knows except the one who receives it. And that was spoken about those that overcome. The saints that overcome will be given a new name that no one knows. So it's no mystery to me that Christ has a name that no one knows yet. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the prophet... Uh, in the book of Isaiah in chapters in chapter sixty two we have this same imagery of this robe and it's and it's saturated or it's dipped in blood and it has the idea of a wrath and fury and fighting and battle that has been taking place. I mean you you see the movies or perhaps you've even experienced it. War and battles are a bloody thing. People die, people get injured. And in this in in this scene, He is not splattered with His own blood like He was at Calvary. Uh, You've seen the passion of the Christ, and you know that that, um, Jesus was drenched in His own blood. But in this scene, He is literally drenched in the blood of His enemies. So it refers to the day of God's judgment. Christ is the commander-in-chief. He's the judge, and He is the executioner that is splattered with blood. You know, there's an interesting verse in Genesis 49, uh, verse 11, I'm going to bring out, and I'll let you decide, but I think it's a, it's, po- it's a possible fulfillment of this prophecy. Way back in Genesis, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he said, Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures, In the blood of grapes. And it's that wine press idea. Where there's a crushing. In order to get the wine juice out of the grapes. You have to crush them. And put your full weight on them. And Revelation applies that. To the wrath of God. Where God's full weight. Comes upon his enemies. And crushes them. And the result. Gory enough is. Blood. And his name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now we're very familiar with this, but the Word of God, uh, it's not a cold doctrine. It's a very warm doctrine, and it, it means more to us than we will ever know, because it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about information. Listen to the, the same apostle that wrote Revelation, also wrote 1 John, and listen to how he wrestles with this idea of of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, and what it means to us on a practical level. In the first four verses in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it And so the incarnation, in some way, it makes um, God tangible to us. It, it, it enters us into this relationship or a fellowship where we have a real relationship with the living God as the word becomes uh, flesh. So it's, it's almost, uh, well, for John, it was tangible because he's like, uh, guys... I actually saw the word, and he had feet and hands. And I touched him, and I spoke to him. I could tell you what his voice sounds like. I could tell you exactly what he looks like. But mysteriously, the incarnation also enters us into this intimate fellowship with God. The word of God is a powerful, powerful thing. And it it's so powerful, in fact, look, look what wins the battle. Look how the word of God is used in this passage. 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white white and pure with following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So we see that, uh, well first we see the saints and they also have horses. You know as a kid What kid has not ever wanted a horse? I mean, didn't we all go through that stage? Mom, dad, I want a horse. I really, I gotta have a horse. I don't just want one, I gotta have one. Well, you might get one in heaven, a white one. So just keep just holding on. Just hold on here. So his people, his armies are with him, and the warrior has come to avenge. He's come to avenge blood, and some of the blood that he's come to avenge. Well, it's the blood of many of those saints that are with him that are arrayed in the fine linen. They're not arrayed in fine armor, surprisingly. You know, we we have seen battle armor in previous passages when it comes to judgments. But here they just have fine linen. There's not the helmets, there's, there's not the swords and the spears, the arrows or whatever else they would battle with. What are they clothed with? The righteousness of Christ, the fine linen there. And by the looks of it, they don't really need armor because the way that this battle goes down, it's almost anticlimactic compared to all of the symbolism that we have seen this far. I mean, there's this, it's the battle of all battles. And the enemies are arrayed against God. All the kings of the earth and all the enemies. And there they are and they're, they're ready. And they have strategized in this. And they fully intend to win. And they want blood. And what happens? As far as we know, not a single uh, arrow was shot. sword was Real sword was drawn. Bullet, whatever. Spitball, nothing was here. But what happened is, the captain of hosts, he just speaks. It's the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. He speaks and his enemies are vanquished. And back in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, the apostle Paul is talking about the lawless one. When the lawless one comes. And he says that when the lawless lawless one comes, that he will be destroyed with the breath. Or by the breath of his mouth referring to Christ. The word of God goes forth and you just levels and decimates his enemies. When Jesus walked this earth, his, the power of his word raised Lazarus from the dead. The power of his word exercised demons that Try as they may, human mankind just could not deliver their loved ones from. Everything obeys and listens to the word of God. And then you have the word of God in this battle that goes forth. And you can't withstand it. You can't fight against it no matter how much armor you bring or how many weapons you bring to this final battle, his enemies fall. And it says that he will rule them with an iron scepter. A, a fulfillment of Psalm 2.9. The idea is he can't be broken. It's, he's got the iron. And uh, he's going to win. You can't cross him. You can't make any ground against him. And on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. King of kings and lord of lords. That has a good ring to it doesn't it? King of kings and lord of lords. I love that saying. I love to picture God. In that way as a king and as a lord. He is the highest. He holds the highest position of exaltation and superiority. It's even possible to attain. He's the sovereign one that reigns in majesty and power and authority. And he is the king of his armies. The second we see the beast and his enemies. 17 through 21. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all the men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, if you were arrayed for battle, You wouldn't want to hear those words. It reminds me of uh, the great classic that everybody should watch at least once. Fistful of Dollars. Clint Eastwood. He he goes into town and he tells the uh, funeral guy, you better make three coffins. Now if you're the one that's going to face him, you don't want to hear those words. Because this guy is so confident that he's having this, the funeral pallbearer whatever director uh, build the caskets before the fight has even started. And in, in essence, that's what's happening right here. The angel goes forth and he's summoning all these creatures that were created for that very purpose. To, to get rid of the dead, yucky, smelly, decaying things that happen in our world. And he summons them from all over because there's going to be such a grand feast. Now we've heard about the wedding feast of the Lamb that God's children are invited to. I don't know what that means. I don't know what we're going to eat. Hot wings probably. It's got to be something good there. Or if some of you want, uh, uh I don't know, maybe healthy food, whatever. But this is another feast. This is a, this is a feast or a supper of God. But they're not just invited. God's enemies, just, they're not just invited to this supper. They are the supper. They are the supper of God. Because they don't stand a chance against God in this battle. They're the banquet. And so, it, they, they will be consumed as a re- result of this battle. And a fulfillment of Ezekiel, chapters 38 39. John makes it clear that people uh, from all levels greatest to the least every level of society that you can imagine great and small they will be a part of this as they opposed God so there's no really uh, juicy details about this battle itself it's just the outcome that's a little bit juicy there as far as we know not a weapon was drawn horses didn't charge I don't even know if battle yells, uh, battle noises were made. People don't even, I don't get any impression that people engaged at all. God's enemies lose and God wins. Christ is the absolute victor. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So the beast and the kings of the earth came and they arrayed themselves and they were all defeated by the Lamb. Psalm 2.2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. Again, fulfillment of prophecy. Isn't it amazing how when you read Scripture and you study Scripture, God drops hints. Like he, We need Him uh, to help us put it all together, but He drops hints everywhere about his greatness and about the things to come. Verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We talked a little bit about that this morning in Sunday school. The rest were slain, verse 21, by the sword... What sword? The sword that came from his mouth. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So Babylon has fallen, and now the Antichrist has fallen, and the fa- false prophet has fallen. The Antichrist, the first beast that rose from the sea, uh, symbolized all the brutal forces, just the, the oppression that takes place on earth. It's kind of. Uh, The the side of evil that's the big bully that doesn't wait for you to decide, doesn't give you a chance to make choices, just plows right on through. And then you have the false prophet who was uh, more coy and deceptive and very, very tactful and just eases his way in through back doors and, and wants to join us in our thinking. And he's indicative of all the philosophies that we hear about and all the... Worldviews that lead us astray, all these little teachings that seem so innocent until you follow them out and then you see who's really behind them. There's so many of these teachings and philosophies that we're subject to today that absolute twist things. It, it, It twists and perverts things that we know of as true and comes out sounding like this is the answer. This is the answer to our society's problems. This is what we need. This is what we need to conform ourselves to. And all of that will be squashed. And the truth of God will reign and rule. So these seemingly indefeatable figures, all of the forces of evil that we are exposed to today or that we read about today and we think this, I've tried and and you just, you can't do anything about it. The system is too big. They're going to drop. They're going to fall. It's just a matter of time. I recently, uh, and by the way, these figures are not mentioned in Scripture. Not, they're not identified, the two beasts or the false prophet or the antichrist. They're not specifically identified, though we incessantly uh, want to identify them, and every generation has identified them as one person or another or one entity or another. I recently read, a uh, there's a a, piece, a priest that does a podcast, and I don't follow him or anything, but I just... These things catch my attention. And he says, he knows who the Antichrist is. But he's not allowed to tell you. So, this is the kind, these are the kind of things that we have, um, you know, to wrestle with. So, whoever they are, we know where they are. And they are thrown into the lake of fire. And they will burn there forever. Why Forever. When God created angels, when God created humanity, He created us with an eternal spirit. And so when God spoke us into existence, we will live in one state or another forever and ever. The state that we will live in forever and ever is the state of mind that we are in when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're either covered in the blood because we believe by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus or we are not, and we will stand alone before that judgment seat and face the punishment for our crimes. That's why for eternity. One of the things that was brought up this morning was, well, how can you know, finite man suffer infinitely for things that we do that seem finitely? Well, because our sin has infinite consequences against an infinite God. And it goes on and on and on. Sin is so bad in the sight of God that it is worthy, it is perfectly just for Him to punish our sins forever and ever and ever and ever because they're high treason against God and His sovereign rule and His holiness. So whatever the case, in the end, all of the enemies, except Satan, we now wait for the next chapter, uh, they have been invited to a supper of God and they are in fact the supper Food for thought there. Another possibility for the eternal punishment of Christ is, uh, still thinking through this, but um, I'm not so sure in Scripture, though we will face judgment and the wicked will be punished and thrown into hell, and every knee will bow and, and acknowledge Christ, all the things that we have suppressed, spent our life, our lives suppressing these truths, about ourselves and about who He is, we will see them more clearly and therefore we will see that what we really deserve is right and true. But I don't read that we that even the wicked will repent of their wickedness. It doesn't mean that, okay, now I see you as right and true and I repent and and I'm and then I live in a state of righteousness because the age of repentance is over by this point. And so my thinking is that Uh, your heart in whatever way continues to remain evil and in rebellion against God because you're not redeemable in this sense. That age has passed. Something to think about there. Then I want to circle back around to verse 10 and close with this verse because something very, very powerful takes place, I think, that um, will do us well to contemplate. Back in verse 10, There's this little exchange that happens and it really rivets John's soul. Actually, I'll go back to verse 9 to give it a context. The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. What a response! John was just, he's, he's undone. All this is so much for him. He, he, he's feeling this sense of reverence and, and I guess holiness and power. He's been told these incredible things by this messenger and his, his response or impulse was just to, to, to worship, to bow down and worship this great figure that told him all of these things. And the angel says, no, don't, don't. Do that. In essence, that's a dollar tree. I'm also a servant. I'm just being used in a different way here, a different capacity. Worship God. And don't you know that worship God, that's the message of Scripture from beginning to end. That's what God has called us to do as humanity, as His creatures, and that's what. All things will be consummated to do in one way or another. They will glorify God, but the saints will worship God. So everything that's transpiring in our lives and in our world, it's all pointing so that God's creatures who were created to do this will worship God. All of the plans from beginning to end. And we're constantly reminded in Scripture and in Revelation, don't worship Babylon, don't worship the lusts of the sin. Don't chase after money. Don't chase after certain people or hold certain people in positions that only God can hold. Worship God. God alone is deserving of that kind of bowing down. God alone is is worthy of those feelings of elation that come from our hearts and our minds. What does it mean to worship God? Well, it's not just singing. To worship God, when God says, when, when this angel said, worship God, it's not just singing. It's when we reassert God's reign and rule in every area of our hearts, in every area of our being. That's what it means to worship God. And that's what Christ is doing. He's turning everything back up. He's causing everything to be put back in its place so that they see him for who he is. And all of these rogue areas of our lives that we have let go astray need to be reasserted under the sovereignty of God. It's not just coming here singing. It's submitting every part of our life and our and our thought. It's it's submitting our marriages to Christ. We worship God through our marriage. It's submitting our work and our career and our education to Christ. We worship God by giving Him our minds, by thinking His thoughts. We worship God by parenting as we raise our kids in the admonition of the Lord, as we obey Him. Worshiping God is reasserting the sphere and the sovereignty of God in every area of our lives, as opposed to farming it out or, or testing this, or keeping a little bit of this, adoring a little bit of this, instead of giving it all to God. In that sense, so we we worship God in all. We worship God by exalting Him. We worship God by edifying one another. We worship God by evangelizing the lost. We worship Him when we pray, when we study in power, when we forgive in power, when we come together in fellowship in power. When we choose to say the right thing and choose not to say the wrong thing, all of that is reasserting the sovereignty of God in our lives. Now, we need to realize this and, and, and push this down in our hearts and mind because we are, God is asking and calling us to worship Him, to reassert His sovereignty in every sphere of our lives in the midst of living in our own little Babylon. So, while the rest of the world and why our own sin struggles with these battles and the shiny objects out there that get our attention that want to pull us away from God, we are to what? Worship God. And that means to forsake all of the allurements of Babylon, and to worship God and worship God alone. So if there's anything out there other than God that we're bowing down to, the angel says, do not do that. Do not bow down to me. I'm just a fellow servant. What are the things out there that we might be bowing down to? <clears throat> well, whatever it is, the message is very clear. Stop. Don't do that. That allegiance belongs to God and God alone. The so how can, say, this kingdom outpost uh, continue to build on the rock when we live in the midst of such an evil world, a, a fallen order and chaos, when it seems like around every corner, evil is getting the upper hand and overcoming. Well, the way we do this is by worshiping God who reigns sovereign over all of these things. Worshiping God whose wisdom far surpasses the wisdom and the philosophies offered By man. Worship God, who is the pearl of great price, and treasure Him. And and don't fall for the lies of the world that this is more precious and more satisfying to your heart than anything that God has to offer. No, we worship God by embracing Him and all He has said to us and all He has gifted us with. We worship Him because He alone can save us from the wrath to come which is God himself who is behind that wrath. Babylon will fall. God will forever stand. And so my encouragement to all of us is, therefore, we are called to and would do well to worship God. May God bless the preaching of his word.